In the children's talk this morning, we heard a paraphrased version of a very familiar story. So familiar, even some of the children knew what it was about before I read it. It's the story of a wedding and a shortage of grape juice. On the, well, fermented grape juice, maybe. Um, it's a story of the first miracle Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. Is this a straightforward account of the compassion of Mary and Jesus as they respond to a crisis, an embarrassing situation in the wedding? No wine and days of celebration to go. Or is it a directive to help the poor? Perhaps they couldn't afford enough wine. So Mary and Jesus help out and relieve their embarrassment. If it's either of those things alone, we could finish pretty early this morning and we can have an early coffee. Is that a good idea? Well, even if it was, you've no such luck, I'm afraid. Um, I'm inviting you to join me in a, a quest to understand the, the passage a little bit more deeply, to look for some of the hidden gems within it and to discover more. N.T. Wright, who we've heard about many times, N.T. Wright said, there is something about this wedding, this wine, which speaks of resurrection, of new creation, of new beginnings, and new hope. I hope we find some of those things in the passage this morning. I'm going to read it again. John 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day... There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Nor draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The passage ends in verse 11. I'm not sure it's a good idea to start at the end, but that's what I'm briefly doing. Then we'll go back to the beginning. The passage ends in verse 11, which includes the phrase, the first of his signs. What does John mean by signs? Well, we're surrounded by signs. Drive down any road in the country and you'll see more signs than you can cope with. Some signs point us in the right direction. I like that sort of sign. 
the sort of sign when you're driving home after a long journey that says, bake up five miles. Or preferably, the sort of sign when you're going on holiday and it says, St. Ives, three miles. Some signs just give us information. Some signs give us orders. Stop! 30, 50, maximum speed. The worst one, bus lane. I don't like bus lanes. I'm really paranoid about them. Um, And some signs warn us something might happen. Falling rocks, you know the sort of thing. There are said to be seven signs in John's Gospel, though we could debate this. Some say eight signs because they include the resurrection. But what about clearing the temple? It wasn't a miracle, but surely it was a sign. It points towards something. And the miraculous catch of fish we heard about last week. Right at the end of the Gospel, John implies that he could have written about many more signs. The usual list is water into wine, healing the royal official's son in Capernaum, healing the paralyzed man at Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the man blind from birth, and raising Lazarus from his tomb. Is seven significant? Those that think so say seven is the number of completion. There were seven days of creation. There are seven I am statements in John. The book of Revelation, if you care to read it, is full of sevens. And I certainly don't know what most of them mean. Uh, But my feeling is there's more to be gained by looking at the signs themselves than pondering the significance of numbers. What we discover as we explore these signs is a deeper meaning or allegory beyond the literal story. An allegory is a sort of story, poem, or picture which is used to reveal a hidden meaning or message similar to the moral of a story. So we look for allegorical truth to be discovered and savoured. I'll try not to hit the microphone with my piece of paper this time. Right, so we go back to the beginning. In chapter 1, John uses the phrase, on the next day, three times. We didn't read any of chapter 1. But in verse 1 of chapter 2, he draws our attention. Something is changing. He uses a new phrase, on the third day. The third day after what? Was it the third day of the wedding feast? Was it the third day after he called Philip and Nathaniel at the end of chapter 1? Was it the third day of the week? We don't know. But I think maybe there's a deeper significance than what it actually was. Because elsewhere in scripture we read that on the third day of creation the first life was created. God made the first living things. And then there's another third day. We all know about that third day. When there was discovered to be an empty tomb. And a living Christ. A third day when there was life instead of death. A day when a new era dawned. Where there was and still is an invitation to reconciliation with God. Adoption into his family. 
and an invitation to a wedding banquet. Indeed, to quote N.T. Wright again, because he says things in a much better way than I can, but if the third day stands for resurrection, there is a hint of this in the way in which the wine replaces the water in the jars, which would normally have been used for purification. Water to bring you back from the debt of uncleanliness to the zero balance of precarious cleanliness once more. Instead of mere purification, Jesus gives transformation, a new life altogether, catching up the old and doing something with it you couldn't have guessed. End of quotation. The text tells us that Mary, Jesus, and the disciples were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. We don't know exactly where Cana was. There are four contenders for its location, but they're all not too far from Nazareth. Weddings then were very different to weddings today. Marriages were decided in an agreement between the groom and the bride's father, sometimes with the bride's agreement, but I suspect that this was often not the case, as the bride might be very young when she was betrothed. The groom was typically much older. A legal contract was signed, and from then on, the couple were legally bound. They did not live together until the bride was old enough. The groom had made somewhere for them to live, often by building a room on the side of his parents' house. And he also had to save up to pay for the wedding festivities and to pay the bride's father some sort of dowry. At an agreed time, the union would be consummated at the bride's home. And I'm avoiding the details here for the sake of decency in a Sunday service. Um, Then the families would travel to the groom's home for the week-long feast. And you think our weddings get expensive. The land they lived in was very different to ours, politically as much as geographically. Israel was an occupied land where the Pax Romana was ruthlessly and violently imposed. The Romans boasted about the good news at every opportunity, but it was usually the gospel of a successful conquest or a rebellion quashed. In exchange for the gift of peace, the Romans wanted taxes and goods. In fact, there was triple taxation. Firstly, for Rome itself, then for the local government, and if you think about it, the Herods, the local rulers, had very, very expensive ambitions indeed. Building a palace, a temple, and goodness knows what else. Uh, And there were also taxes for the temple. Galilee was fertile and productive. The Sea of Galilee was teeming with fish. So the Romans said, thank you, we want your olives, your grain, your fish. They even built a fish processing plant on the shoreline. The Romans, for some unknown reason, loved fish sauce. People were oppressed, often hungry, highly taxed, and they were perplexed about the promises made to them in their scriptures. They were looking for the promised Messiah to liberate them and lead them into freedom and prosperity. 
So a wedding was a welcome distraction, a time of joy to celebrate with the bride and groom, but also a time to forget the hardships of life. The text implies that people drank a lot at these festivities, hence the idea of good wine first, then cheap plonk when people were too tipsy to notice the difference. But the wine ran out, and no more than three days into the celebrations. Why did this happen? Were there more guests than expected? After all, we know that if you put on free food, you normally get a good turnout. Did the guests forget to bring the customary gifts of food and wine? Couldn't the groom afford enough wine? But he was wealthy enough to have servants, so that doesn't really make sense. Wine was a symbol of blessing and joy. So when the wine ran out, was this a sign that the marriage would be one of disadvantage and sorrow? Mary was aware that the wine had run out. What could she do? Her response is interesting. Not an intercessory plea, just a statement of fact. How different to our way of praying. Mary knew her son. She remembered the promises, the hope, and she trusted him. Jesus' response to Mary seems rather abrupt, even rude. However, it seems that to address your mother like this was culturally appropriate, and the same phrases are found elsewhere in ancient documents. And Jesus used exactly the same words speaking to her from the cross. N.T. Wright gives us a different translation. All right, mother, he says, but what's that got to do with you and me? My time hasn't come yet. Anyway, in the translation I was using in chapter 2, it says hour, not time. The usual interpretation is that Jesus is saying that he hasn't begun his ministry yet, but prompted by Mary, he inaugurates his work. But is this true? Because in the previous chapter, chapter 1, John the Baptist had testified that he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus and stay with him. He had called at least five disciples to follow him. No, I think his ministry had actually begun at that point. And for an explanation, we need to look ahead. In chapter 13, verse 1, we read that Jesus then knew that his hour had come. We've read of his first gift of wine. He knew, they all knew, that the first sign that Moses did before Pharaoh was turning water into blood, turning the Nile into blood. The first sign Jesus would do was turning water into wine, abundant wine. But the last time he would be offering the gift of wine to his disciples, he would be saying, take, drink, this is my blood. Maybe it's not surprising that there was a little hesitation because he realized that in what he was about to do, the great gift of wine at the wedding, he was also foretelling what was to come later in his ministry. He knew what wine would come to symbolize for his followers. For this to happen, there was the inevitability of the cross. Jesus offers and gives. He offers water, 
living water in John chapter 4 so that we might never thirst. Wine, abundant wine, signifying provision, hope, joy and celebration. Blood, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Life given to give us life. Mary was undeterred by Jesus' response and spoke to the servants and she speaks to us. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. There is, I read, a grammatical impetus here. I don't know, are there any linguists in the room? I hope I've got it right if there are. Um, Something called the historical present, where events in the past are written in the present tense, conveying a sense of urgency. In Latin, the phrase for this is translatio temporum. You like that, don't you? Um, Or transferring the time. I find it fascinating that translatio means both transfer and metaphor. Well, that seems to fit somehow. But the message really is, just do it, as Glenn told us last week. Cast your nets on the other side. Dare to break habits or traditions. Do it. Now, I wonder if there's another sign here, a warning that we shouldn't try to do hospitality on the cheap, that we should be generous in hospitality. Hospitality builds community. And to whom should we show hospitality as individuals and as a church? Remembering it breaks down barriers and fosters understanding and inclusion. We need to remember that Paul and James had to rebuke the church for for showing favoritism. But I've digressed. Jesus does respond to Mary's prompt. Does he change his mind? There's another example of Jesus seemingly changing his mind in Matthew 15, um, which echoes Mark 7. It's the same story. This is where Jesus is encountered by a Canaanite woman who is asking for healing for, I think, her daughter. The Canaanite woman not only had great faith, as Jesus stated, but she also understood the idea of abundance because she knew that just crumbs from the table that Jesus served at were sufficient to see her daughter healed. She knew there was abundance in the kingdom of God. So there were six large stone water jars present, the kind used for for ritual purification. Sorry, I've suddenly become unable to get my words out. Um, I'll, I'll read it again. There were six large stone water jars there, the kind used for ritual purification. Why six? Well, I think it's because there were six. What was a row of huge, expensive water jars doing in a small Galilean village, seemingly in the home of someone who couldn't pay for his own wedding reception? Washing to ensure purity is found in the Torah, but in the sense of the priestly sacrifices. But to avoid breaking any commandments by mistake, the Pharisees had vastly expanded the rule book And one rule was that you needed to wash before you had anything to eat. I think that's quite a good idea. 
but I know about germs, and their reasoning was legalistically religious, not hygiene-related. Remember that elsewhere, Jesus and the disciples were criticized for not washing their hands. The jars were of stone. This is significant in that they could be reused even if they became temporarily unclean by contact with, for example, a lizard falling off the ceiling into one of them. I'm sure it happened. Or perhaps being used for wine rather than water. If they'd become pottery vessels that became unclean, they had to be smashed. Did their presence signify that the house was that of a priest whose temple duties were on a rota, like Zechariah in Luke 1? Why were the jars empty? We don't know, but we can speculate. Perhaps the water had been used for hand washing before the feast, but 120 or more gallons washes an awful lot of hands. Perhaps the jars were disused, just gathering dust and spiders. Whatever the reason, they were empty. At this point, the obvious question to me and to you is, are you running on empty? Are you physically, emotionally, or spiritually dry? Did your refuel warning light on your dashboard come on 50 miles ago and you've been going around in circles unable to find a spiritual filling station? There's hope, there's always hope if you've asked Jesus to the party of your life. But the great thing is, he doesn't mind a late invitation. Jesus directs the servants to fill the jars with water. That that would have been quite a task. At least 62 gallon buckets full needed, and they didn't have a kitchen tap. The water would weigh over half a ton. I don't know about you, but if I was filling these jars, and by the way, being stone jars, they were probably more shaped like a bucket than a, a traditional vessel which rose up to a neck and you know shoulders and then the body of the jar. So they were probably bucket-shaped to start with. I'd have probably filled them to within a couple of inches of the top, and I'd have thought I'd done a very good job. But the servants' obedience was greater, and they filled the jars right up to the brim with what I like to think of as extravagant willingness. Well, the jars were now unclean, but Jesus hadn't discarded the old, but rather showed how a new age of blessing and liberality was being birthed out of the old. It wasn't the last time that Jesus broke the rules relating to purity and cleanliness. I'll give you just one example. According to the law, if you touched a leper, you became unclean. Leprosy was seen as divine punishment for sin. When Jesus touched lepers, they were healed. It couldn't be denied that the healing was a work from God, but as leprosy was seen as a judgment from God, that that created a dilemma for the religious authorities. Sorry, I can't resist this. I'm going to give you another example as well. I was going to abbreviate it at this point, but I I like this one because I think it's particularly special. According to the law, touching a dead body made you unclean. 
But Jesus touched the daughter of Jairus and she came back to life. Actually, this passage in Luke 8 is like a buy one, get one free offer. Because in the middle of his journey to the house of the daughter, Jesus was touched by a woman who had a hemorrhage, who was ritually unclean. And in the process, she was healed, but under the law, this made Jesus unclean too. So Jesus was unclean when he restored life to the girl. I think that's incredible. I think we ought to consider how often we think of ourselves as unworthy, perhaps sinful, perhaps unclean, and therefore incapable of doing the will of our God. Perhaps in this God is saying, no, I am with you, even if by the letter of the law you have done something wrong, you are unclean. I am with you. I am always with you. Jesus repeatedly broke the rules because his kingdom is one of mercy, compassion, healing, and inclusion. The incomplete was being complete. Law was becoming freedom, not written on tablets of stone or scrolls, but in hearts and minds, born again to a living hope, to newness of life. Jesus could have told the servants to fill the used wineskins with water. But by transforming water into wine using the ritual purity vessels, he turned a ceremony which was exclusive and which created a them and us division in society. Oh, we are clean, you are not division. He turned it into a vision of abundance and equality, where there would be no second-class citizens given the rubbish wine where there's more than plenty for all, and it's all the best. A vision of inclusion and provision of hope and of joy. Now take some to the master of ceremonies. Did the servants know the water had become wine? Could they see the color and smell the aroma? The master of ceremonies was amazed. He called across the groom to ask what was going on. You've kept the best wine until last. We're not told what the groom said, but I think it's because he was lost for words. Well, what lessons can we take home with us? You will have realized by now, I don't do nice and neat three-point sermons. Perhaps I do it in an attempt not to get asked to preach again, I don't know. Um, It's subconscious, you know. Um, I said... I've suggested a number of things, and I don't suggest that you try to take on all of them. Looking for signs, clues, or pointers as we read the Bible can help us to discover more about God and about ourselves. But sometimes there's far too much in a single passage for any one occasion. Going back to this metaphor of signs, we have, I hope, seen in the short passage signs giving us direction, warning, Information, orders, and invitation. I'll summarize. Direction. Although the story looks ahead to the resurrection, it also infers the agony of the cross. The wine reminds us of communion of the most costly wine there has ever been. We are pointed in the direction 
of being generous and inclusive in hospitality. Eating together, building community, reducing hostility and fostering inclusion. A sign of warning. Respect tradition, but be prepared to move on to new things. Signs of information. Prayer can be brief, even just a simple statement of fact, and it can still be effective. A further sign of information, Jesus gives liberally in great abundance. Our gospel isn't a gospel of scarcity, but neither is it a gospel of materialistic prosperity. Abundant life speaks of relationship, firstly with God and then with each other and then with the world, those who don't follow Christ, and then with the whole of creation. Signs which give us orders. Do whatever he tells you. Do it now. A sign of invitation. An invitation to us to ask for living water. Are you thirsty? Ask. We're also invited to see his glory and to believe in him, just as the first disciples did, as we are told in verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him.